When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Case listeners and happy Halloween week. I am Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson, her father. We welcome you to the bookcase with Kate and Charlie. And this week I can say with some sense of relief, but maybe even some sense of respect for what we've done. We've done now a series of shows on horror writers. And I must admit, Kate wanted to do this very much. She's a fan of horror writers. And I came into it with great reluctance. And I have come out of it with, I think, a good deal of respect for the writers that we have talked to. And I have liked many of the books. You brought me into this kicking and screaming, and I go out applauding. I'm feeling the ground. You guys can't see it, but I'm feeling the ground beneath me because I feel like maybe hell froze over. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so happy to say that I built a sense of respect and a skeptic as an understatement. I love that he is searching for words for how he feels about the end of this series. I came stacked with words because I know that I use the word excited super excited, super enthusiastic. So I am thrilled, exhilarated, roused, stirred, electrified, <laughs> and delighted. Yeah, thank you, thesaurus.com, that we're ending this series with, I think, one of the centerpieces of the horror genre, which is Paul Tremblay, who I think is incredibly talented. The first book I picked up of Paul Tremblay's was A Head Full of Ghosts because Stephen King blurbed it. I've now, since I've read everything Stephen King has ever written, and we're still pushing for him to be on the show, Stephen, if you're listening. I hope you like the series. Stephen King blurbed, this book scared the hell out of me. And I thought, oh, well, you know, and he says, I'm pretty hard to scare. And I thought, well, if this book scared the hell out of him, then this is going to be fun. And it was. A Head Full of Ghosts to me opened a whole Pandora's box of a love affair with Paul Tremblay's literature. And I knew I wanted him to be the last writer we talked to. But it's interesting. Stephen King may blurb that. <laughs> it didn't scare me. It didn't. No, because it is sort of an homage to The Exorcist and it is a sort of companion piece to The Exorcist. I thought it was a really interesting device in the way he paralleled the story of The Exorcist, but changed it in some very important ways. I draw a distinction, I guess, in what we call horror, as we've talked about. I don't mind calling it dark fiction. I don't mind saying it can create a sense of dread. What I don't want is slasher books. I don't mm. want books that there's so much violence. I don't care if a few characters get knocked off during the course of the novel, if it's done in humane ways, if that's <laughs> not a contradiction in terms. If it simply is a good piece of literature and it engenders a sense of dread, that's fine with me. Just don't make me cringe with repulsion. I agree. And I think that's an important distinction as we launch into our last show. I'm all for having eyes gouged out and jaws ripped off and legs ripped no, off. I'm all okay. for that. No, no, no. 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 I'm, I'm all for that. I, I, oh, listeners, really? I'm all well, for stay that. Stay away from me. Then. <laughs> stay away from me. What I am not for, though, is a long descriptor of how and why it happens, what it sounds like and how it makes the person feel. That to me is a snuff movie or a snuff book. I'm not interested in human torture. I well, am not. You. Christopher Good. Golden described it as, and I think this is a very important distinction. Christopher Golden, go back to our first author, described those books and movies as exploring man's inhumanity. 
I think that's a really good way of describing it. I don't care about man's inhumanity. I don't care. I don't want to read it. It's not what I do for fun. It's not enjoyable to me. I love exploring humanity. And I think that can be found within the pages of all good horror. There's also a huge amount of room for fun within stories. Just, you know, what's the craziest concept you can come up with and can you pull it off and can you frighten people with it? And I love that interchange. I just, I enjoy the heck out of it. And I love living in that space. And I love Paul Tremblay. (laughs) Well, Paul Tremblay's book, the one interesting example is Cabin at the End of the World, Mm -hmm. which is a story about very menacing people coming into a cabin and threatening the people that are there. That really got me scared. But there was nothing supernatural in it. There Mm -hmm. were no ghosts in it. There were no poltergeists. And nobody got their eyes slashed out. I thought, you know, as a piece of dark fiction, it was quite good. Anyway, I really enjoyed the conversation with Paul Tremblay. He is a good advocate for his craft. And so here it is, our conversation with Paul Tremblay. Paul Tremblay, I am so honored to have you in the book as you're our final horror author for our horror series. I want to ask you a first question about the interview I read in Esquire magazine. You said, with all deference to thriller writers, I want to be a horror writer. And I wanted to know, how did that start for you? Why did you want to become a horror writer? I've just had like this weird, like lifelong interest in horror. It started with movies. I mean, I'm going to date myself here, but you know, when I was like seven and eight, pre-cable television, I know the podcasting universe is like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And in the Boston area, they played a program called Creature Double Feature. You know, and the first movie was always a Kaiju Godzilla movie. And that that was the draw for a kid who liked dinosaurs. And then the second movies were more like straight horror movies and even silly ones like Attack of the Killer Shrews, but they gave me nightmares. I still vividly remember my Attack of the Killer Shrews nightmare. <laughs> so I've I've had this, you know, as a child, a long you know, relationship with horror. You know, and as I got older and as a teenager in the eighties, you know, those fun out quote unquote fun horrors sort of became more adult horrors, just the the fear of nuclear war and, and stuff like that. And so now as an adult, I don't know, I'm just, I'm fascinated by the difficult questions that horror can pose. So I think that would dovetail a little bit into the thriller question. I mean, because I've certainly written a couple of books, I think that have thriller setups, but I don't know, I'm continually drawn to the idea of horror. I mean, any work of art, any, you know, song, book, movie, even, you know, painting, you're working to expose the truth, right? So in a horror story, you're exposing some sort of horrific truth or a terrible truth. And I'm, I'm fascinated by when that truth is revealed, what do the characters do now? What decisions do they make? You know, how do they live through this? How does anybody live through this? I'm curious then what makes it in your mind a horror book? Mm. For instance, you talk about how characters might react to horrible situations. And I think, well, the ultimate book in that area to me is Sophie's Choice. It would fit into the definition, it seems to me, that you just gave me. But I wouldn't make that a horror novel. Yeah. I mean, I would sort of call it horror adjacent, maybe. But no, I, I totally understand what you mean. Because for me, it's hard to describe. Like, I mean, because I wouldn't necessarily define horror by the scare either, because what's scary is so subjective, right? What scares you might not scare me. But I think it's just the, you know the lingering affect of dread or the feeling of dread. So... I don't know, Charlie, I might like I might argue that Sophie's Choice is ultimately a horror story. I I kind of have like a big umbrella or a big tent, you know, put all the circus people, I guess, under the tent of horror. (laughs) And honestly, I'm not trying to be flippant. Writers for decades have tried to define what horror is. Some say it's an emotion. Some say, you know, it's something else. So I that's another thing that I sort of like about it, because I I feel like it can sort of like (laughs) almost like a ghost, like permeate into other sort of genres and other modes, which is, again, something I'm really interested in. 
Yeah, as far as like the violent side of things, I don't know, like that's I think one of the, the fun, strange, weird parts of horror. I mean, there's a lot of horror I don't like. I typically don't like things that are violent for the sake of violence. But at the same time, it can be really effective, you know, if there's sort of like a, a thematic sort of point to it. You know, and I would mention like most of my books are psychologically horrific <laughs> with a supernatural sort of ambiguity, but something like The Cabinet at the End of the World, I wrote it because I had this idea for a home invasion story. I'm like, oh, I don't like home invasion stories. So it's make me feel icky. But I was excited by the prospect. Oh, okay. How would I write one that I would want to sit through? One of the things that's really stayed with me through these interviews, Stephen Graham Jones and Josh Mallerman both define horror as optimistic, Mm. right? Stephen Graham Jones thinks it's optimistic because there's always somebody who's alive at the end. Josh Mallerman describes it as optimistic because he considers it to be the promise of life after death. Do you think of horror as optimistic? I do, but I don't like those as much. I mean, Stephen is like one of my best friends, you know, and I, I respect Josh. I would come at Josh's answer totally different based on my own belief systems. I do find horror optimistic, but sort of like in a punk rock way. <laughs> you know, I think the Kamathy in the world's, you know, fairly disturbing piece. But <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, find, I find the end actually, I do find the end hopeful. But I would say in general, you know, to go back to the reveal of a terrible truth, just the fact that the author and the readers, there's that shared communication. Yes, there's this horrible thing's been revealed and some of these characters may not make it. But I find hope and the fact that there's the shared recognition that something is wrong. Mm. I find like, you know, the punk rock, like raised fist. Yeah, like we're doomed. But hey, we recognize that. Well, I want to talk a lot about a lot of different parts of your work, but I'll start with a head full of ghosts. It's a possession story that reads like reality TV. So I wanted to ask you, could a head full of ghosts exist without the incredible proliferation of reality TV as a genre? I would have to approach it somewhat differently. But like when, when I was writing it, I thought, oh, how better to build the ambiguity than to have <laughs> the quote unquote reality TV aspect of it, right? Like, I mean, it's a little bit of like cultural shorthand to be like, oh, we know it's not real TV. But what does that mean? So everything in that book was, you know, trying to play against, well, what is reality? What isn't reality? I want to go back too because I've, I've got to ask. Okay, the big sleep and no sleep into Wonderland, yeah. which, by the way, I'd, I'd like a third if you if oh, you wanted you so to much. give me another Mark Genovich. Yeah. I would love another Mark <laughs> Genovich. Narcoleptic private detective? Huh? Yeah. Like, did you wake up one day and go and turn to your wife and go, I've got it. <laughs> Narcoleptic private detective. Like, where did that concept come from? Because it's brilliant and it's brilliantly written. Oh, thank you. It's funny. Like, uh, there were a lot of weird things that happened with that book was one that, you know, I wasn't I didn't really consider myself a crime writer. I just happened to have the idea. Like when I first had the idea of a big city detective, a woman comes into the office in a sort of a stereotypical scene except she holds up her hands and there's bandages on her fingers. And she says, someone stole my fingers and replaced them with someone else's. You have to find them. And when I first had that first chapter in mind, I tried to create a horror novel or a, a Philip K. Dick science fiction thing. It didn't work. So I put it aside for like a year. And then uh, I was online researching diseases as horror writers do, I guess. <laughs> and I, 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 stu- I stumbled across narcolepsy. And once I started reading more about it, I was like, this makes perfect sense to me. You know, not only do narcoleptics fall asleep, they'll fall directly into a dream state. And I had had some experience not with narcolepsy, but with sleep apnea at a pretty early age compared to most sleep apnea sufferers. So a lot of the fatigue and some of the stuff I I shared with Mark. It's funny you mentioned my wife, though, but I did steal from her South Boston and her family because her mother's side of the family are all Lithuanians that grew up in South Boston. She's from Southie. Yes. She's from Southie. Oh, yeah. No, they're Lithuanians. Genovich is, you know, my mother-in-law's maiden name. So, yeah, there was definitely some... (laughs) 
influence there. <laughs> <laughs> Something that has interested me with all of the horror writers we've talked to, I think the movie maker delving into horror has such a great advantage over the author. Uh, he or she has music, has mm. sound effects, has can play with light changes. Fake blood. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even having the advantage of a moviegoer sitting in a theater in a strange surrounding where your readers are sitting at home in familiar surroundings. If they begin to get scared, they shut the book, walk away, come back to it later. The moviegoer can't do that. Do you think you're at a competitive disadvantage with them? And does it make you work harder yeah. to create that sense of dread or fear in a reader? I think there are two different sort of sets of affects. I think there's advantages to both. I mean, for a horror movie, you know, it's an hour and a half. You're expecting jump scares. Uh, I do think there's somewhat of a safety net there in the theater, too, which I don't think is always there when you're at home. You mentioned like reading the book if you get freaked out. If you're reading a book and you get freaked out and close it, I'm guaranteeing you, you're still thinking about it. You're not just like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on with my day kind of thing. So no, I mean, those are the things I love when I hear from readers that like I couldn't stop reading at night, even though I was terrified or, you know, you hear jokes about people putting books in the freezer. I have done with my books, a lot of goofy sort of interior design stuff that sometimes they like and sometimes they don't. <laughs> but I have threatened it's like, oh, we should do like some pop-up pages as a jump scare sometime. That'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know what's... So you've got a, a proliferation. You've done short stories. You've done collaborations. You've done novels. You've done P.I. books. So when you look at what's next for you, how do you know, you know what? I haven't done short stories in a while. Yeah. Or, you know, it's time for me to pick up more. How do you know what's next for you? Uh, as far as short stories go, like I'm sort of like in the good spot where like editors will ask me for some and, and I can't say yes to everything. But it can be nice to take a break from a novel for a couple of weeks to write a short story. And then when I go back to the novel, I kind of have a fresh set of eyes because so I can't work on two things at once. It kind of has to be all in on one or the other. Yeah, I don't know. That's sort of the question I've been asking myself because so many of my <laughs> books, well, you know, A Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance of Devil's Rock in the Cabinet, The End of the World, and even maybe another one after that, all, all dealt with like families, you know, of, of children of a certain age. You know, now both of my kids are one just graduated college and one's in college. I'm like, man. What am I going to write? Like empty nest horror, I guess. Um, <laughs> so like, unlike, I'm sure like unlike Josh and Steven, uh, I really admire how prolific they are and how many ideas they have to choose from. I move from idea to idea. So for me, there's always the terror of like, oh, what if this was the last one? What if I don't find something? <laughs> but, you know, I usually find it. When you say you're working at one at a time, we just this week talked to Alice McDermott, who has written a wonderful book called Absolution. But she says she works on two novels at a time. And she does that because if she finds that one is going nowhere mm. or when she gets the end, it sucks. She always got the other <laughs> one to go back to, yeah. that it's there waiting for her. And it brings her out of that funk that she may be in because the one didn't work. Do you ever get way into a novel and realize, oh, this is awful and it's just not <laughs> going to work. I can't do it. I have just spent the yeah. last six months going up a blind alley. Knock on wood, I hope it doesn't happen soon, but- in 2013, I was 100 pages into a different novel, and I was going to call the novel Charles Manson Doesn't Answer My Letters, which is a great title. Uh, <laughs> um, That's a great yeah, title. So the title was a cool. great title. It was about an eighth grader at the time, like writing letters to Manson. And that was sort of how like the book was going to be told. But I, I got really bogged down and I started making excuses, like doing research. And that's how I sort of stumbled into A Head Full of Ghosts. I was reading... It was quote unquote research, even though it had nothing to do with the book. But I was reading this big book of essays about The Exorcist, the movie. And I read that and that got me like really excited because all these essays were about placing the film 
sort of in political context and also in social context. It's like, oh, like Hollywood's always putting out, you know, possession movies, but there really haven't been a ton of possession novels that I remembered within the last 10 or 15 years. This was in 2013. So, yeah, I mean, I try to like short stories that happens all the time. Like a short story is terrible. In fact, you know, our mutual friend, Stephen Graham Jones, I sent him one like two or three years ago because I knew it needed help. And I said, Stephen, what, you know, can you read this for me? And he's like, okay, do you want the grad school reading or just like the friendly reading? I said, give me the grad school reading. So he basically said everything except the first paragraph had to go. <laughs> but that's exactly what I, it was. It was exactly what I needed to hear. So, yeah, I mean, when something fails, it's certainly disheartening. But you also just try to remember that everything you do is, you know, just another step forward to something else that you're going to get to hopefully eventually. You made reference to Head Full of Ghosts and Katie was talking about it earlier. I found that was really interesting in that book. It's an homage both to William Peter Blatty and The Exorcist. And I also thought to Shirley Jackson. Did you consciously want to pay tribute in that book to those two other pieces? Absolutely. I mean, once I had the idea and the original idea was that... You know, I wanted to do like a secular skeptics view. But then once I got into it, it quickly became ambiguous. So when people ask me, is there a right answer? I'm like, no, like the end is the end. It's it's sort of left up to you. But once I knew that, like I'm writing a possession story, how can you not, <laughs> you know, how can you not reference, you know, the exorcist? You know, it's the same thing as like if you end up reading or seeing a zombie movie and like and people are like, what are they? No, they would know they were zombies. <laughs> you know, like you can't. Once I knew I couldn't escape a reference to the exorcist, that kind of opened up the whole book to, oh. I can make references to just about every horror movie I like and don't like and novel I do like. And that'll actually help build the ambiguity because readers will be like, oh, wait a minute, that was just like this. Or wait a minute, Mary is named after uh, Mary Cat Blackwood from Shirley Jackson's, you know, We've Always Lived in the Castle. So to me, I thought that was just like a perfect or hopefully fun way, you know, to build the ambiguity. So no, that was, in some ways, I felt like A Head Full of Ghosts was like my graduate thesis on what I like about horror, what I don't like about horror. <laughs> you mentioned Stephen Graham Jones more than once uh, in A Head Full of Ghosts. Yes. But I'm also, I'm sort of fascinated. The first writer we talked to was Christopher Golden. And I said to him, he said, who else do you think you want to talk to? And I said, well, I love Jennifer McMahon. And I love Josh Malin. I love Stephen Graham Jones. I love it. And he goes, oh, I have all their numbers. And I said yeah. to him, I was like, you do? And he <laughs> said, yes, we are a very tight knit community. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think we're unique. I think we're a unique genre in that space, because in some ways I feel like we're all working through something. Do you feel that's true? You know, horror sort of like has historically has gone up and down in popularity. So I do think there's also just the part of it is like, oh, when you meet another horror fan, it's like, hey, we like the same stuff. Like most of the people I work with my day job don't. <laughs> Let's hang out. <laughs> Let's talk, you know, and, and add that on top of like your writing horror too. It's been wonderfully supportive and you know, so many of my best friends are, are people that I write and it's born from like, I just really respect their work and respect what they do. Yeah. And it's kind of cool. Well, and it's gotten to be, I mean, for me, it's such a tight knit community that now I pay attention to who blurbs what. Like if you're on the front cover, chances are I'm going to read it. If Stephen King's on the front cover, chances are I'm oh, going to read thanks. it because you learn to trust the taste of sure. of other great horror writers, <laughs> which is also, I think, somewhat, I, I don't know if it's unique to the genre. Maybe I'm just so involved in the genre. I don't pay attention to other genres, but I just feel like you guys are so great about supporting each other and blurbing each other. Yeah, thanks. One book that we haven't talked about is Survivor Song which if people have read it, they know it, it involves an extreme form of rabies and there's a pandemic. But what really interests me is you wrote it before COVID. Yeah. Really prescient. <laughs> and I wondered if you thought, gee, that novel is not going to be as scary to people now because 
we've had a real scary pandemic or you thought, oh, this is going to be even more scary for people? Oh, well, at first I was like, who's going to want to read this? Because I, I know like in 2020, I didn't want to read anything close. I know like a lot of people would go watch Contagion. Although weirdly, I, I guess I did reread Camus' The Plague at the end of summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like it was like Camus was writing about now yeah. in, in terms of people's yeah. reaction to it. So, I mean, whatever pressure the, the book have is due to my sister who works at one of the biggest hospitals in Boston. Oh. I leaned on her experience. Like, you know, this was 2018 when I went to her for research. And in 2014, I don't know if you remember, but we had in the U.S. an Ebola scare where a few patients were here in her hospital was going to be one of the few hospitals that were going to take Ebola patients. And that's where I first heard the phrase PPE. I remember writing that book and writing the exchange like, oh, how many times do I have to explain PPE? You know, <laughs> just once or, or multiple times? No, it was very strange. It was just a, I mean, 2020 was strange and awful for everybody, but the book experience was just doubly strange because of the, <laughs> the weird stuff that sort of came to be. How do you feel like the pandemic in the last couple of years, what do you think its long-term effects on horror writing is going to be? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, honestly, one of it's, I mean, this is sort of pandemic adjacent, but with, you know, the Black Lives Matter movements and first, like all the awful murders that happened in, you know, in May, I think that really woke up, at least in terms of like the culture that is consumed, you know, books, TVs, movies, that really led to a clarion call of like, hey, we need to have more writers that are just, you know, cishet white men. You can almost draw a little bit of a direct line from that to now where you're seeing so many queer authors and BIPOC authors in horror, which is amazing. You know, we need to do better. When I say we, the horror community, that needs to exist. So, I mean, to me, that's sort of like the hopeful sort of part of 2020. Honestly, the rest of it, I'm not sure. I mean, misinformation seems to be worse. I don't want to get too bummer horror writer on you. But like, you know, as a teacher too, you can sort of see like the educational gap sort of coming up. And it's, this is just something that we're just going to be dealing with in the, the, the consequences both seen and unseen for so long. Mm. One of the things that I've gotten to thinking about in this series that Kate has wanted to do with horror writers is where horror will go. And you make the point about a pandemic. Now we've had a real one, but it occurs to me, AI, as soon as people begin to really understand it, it seems to me a rather fertile ground Mm. for what could be horror. Where do you see it going? I mean, I think you're already seeing a lot of like climate horror or eco fiction, you know, a lot of horror works dealing with that. I, I totally agree, you know, sort of on the AI front. And I don't know, I think, you know, a lot of my favorite works are just about the snapshot of now. I would hope writers don't worry about, oh, if I write about like what's happening right now, it's going to seem dated. I, I, I hate that term. So for me, you know, I want writers to lean into the experiences that they're having now. I also feel like with the proliferation of BIPOC authors, of LGBTQIA plus authors, we're also starting to see in the last few years, last decade or so, a rise of social justice in horror. Jordan Peele, mm-hmm. Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, Stephen Graham Jones mapping the interior. And I, I hope that continues as well, yes. um, because I feel like that's sort of stepping up the slasher genre or the horror genre to a new level. No, absolutely. I think it's... You know, a very exciting time to be a horror writer and a horror fan. Yeah. Kate, you just said something that amazed me. Take slasher novels to a new level. <laughs> what? I'm not quite sure I, I welcome that prospect or what you mean by it. Well, I think, okay, well, I'll tell you what I mean, which is there was sort of the mindless slasher genre. And then Wes Craven turned around and said, hey, have you guys taken a good look at the slasher genre? Because it has themes. The final girl is a thing. Never say, I'm going to be right back. 
And I think that those moments turn the genre on its ear and make us think of it in a whole new way. The same way that when we were talking to the airplane authors a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that it changed comedy. Genres go through phases, and I'm sort of hoping the social justice of horror lasts a while. I mean, to slashes in particular, I mean, that's been fraught forever with gender politics, for one. You know, whether or not like I mean, there's still arguments now as to whether or not like is this is the final girl like a feminist statement or is it or is it not a feminist statement? To me, like the advantage of working in a genre, there are disadvantages as well, but let's stick with the advantage. I think one of the advantages is if you do your job right as a writer or storyteller, your story fits into this 150 plus year long conversation of genre, you know, going back to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or maybe even older than that. So like your work's going to be in there, whether you like it or not. And it's up to you. Do you want it to engage in the conversation or maybe, you know, if your story is good enough, you know, you get to say something that's maybe new, but you maybe also get to say something about something else that that was already written or already seen or put it in a new context. The last question I wanted to ask you is writers talk an awful lot about their peer writer groups. Is there a horror writers group out there? Can I join? And (laughs) how do you analyze each other's work? What makes it different from your average writers group? There is the Horror Writers Association, which is, you know, sort of like a writers guild that you can join. The HWA. Correct. Yeah. You know, they're the ones that award the Bram Stoker Award. But say, you know, there are so many like informal ones. And I would say I've been mostly informal and just I have like a good circle of friends that I, I trust and maybe see a couple times a year at, at writers' conventions. But, you know, a lot of the times I'm at a point now where I don't always want horror writers or readers to read. I want them to read it, but I also want other readers, too, to read it. Like, I, I would love, you know, I love that there's a big, healthy horror section in bookstores. But mm-hmm. there's a little part of me, it's a little sad that's not all just fiction. Because I feel like I'm not going to get someone by mistake. <laughs> it, you know, because like a non-horror reader is not going to walk to the horror section on purpose. Like, you know, if it's in actual <laughs> fiction, sometimes you can snare more people that way. Oh, boy, I hope I talk some people into reading it with a series because it is a genre that I would love to seduce more people into. Well, thank you, Kate. The thing that has struck me through this series is it it is a lot broader genre than I ever thought of and indeed have found novels that I have enjoyed in all this that I think you're right, could be in the horror section of the bookstore, could also be in general fiction as well. Paul Tremblay, a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a very good way to conclude our series, and we appreciate your being with us. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. 
It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Fire questions for Paul Tremblay. If you had never read a Paul Tremblay before, what would you tell them the, the best my first Paul Tremblay book would be? A head full of ghosts. Definitely. Is there a horror book that told you when you were young, this is what I want to do? As a really young adult, there are two stories. Joyce Carol Oates is Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? I read that in a, in a college class that it was a fulfillment that I'd put off until a senior year. <laughs> and I remember thinking when I read that story, it's like, oh, I didn't know people wrote things like this. And shortly after that, when I graduated, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, bought me Stephen King's The Stand. So those two things just turned me into readers first, mm. and then eventually had the weirdest to try writing a story. You teach math to high school students, which yeah. I think is wonderful. But how does that, how is that synergistic with writing? I think for me, I, one, like, I don't want to describe myself as an energy vampire, but like, I definitely get energy from the kids. It helps keep me young. I look forward, by the way, to your horror book about math. Like whatever, like <laughs> I know I'm, the Pythagorean theme came for them. Like whatever it is, I don't, I don't know. Are horror authors and fans afraid of everything, or are they fearless? I'd say more often they're afraid of everything. Yeah, I, I am in that category. I still have like sort of monstery, weird nightmares. If I'm home by myself, which doesn't happen that much anymore, you know, because I have two kids and a dog and a wife, and if I'm home by myself, I get freaked out just being home by myself. I love, by the way, it, you have college age kids. That's the new horror book. They came home. Yes. They my live right in now. my basement. Anyway, sorry. Dad. Scariest movie you've ever seen. Well, I'm going to go by the amount of nightmares given to me and it's Jaws. Because when I saw uh. it when I was 11, it broke my brain. And I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> From age 11 to at least 17, maybe even 18, every dream I had ended up being a shark nightmare. I would end up in the water and get attacked. <laughs> I, I've seen the movie probably over 50 times since, but I still cover my face. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I still cover my face when Quint gets eaten. Yep. Because I'm just, I've seen much gorier things, but there's a part of me that's afraid that if I see it again, my brain will go back to where it was when I was 11 years old. So when I watch it with my kids for the first time, I ceremoniously put the pillows over our head. I love, but of course, my, my kids didn't. Yeah. I love the brain athletics involved. I could start out in an airplane and I end up somehow being eaten by a shark. That's good. <laughs> exactly. Scariest book you ever read? When I first tried reading it as an 18-year-old, because I was home for the summer recovering from spinal surgery, I read the first chapter and I, I threw it across the room. I was like, nope, not going to do that. <laughs> uh, other than that, Pet Cemetery. And maybe more recently, just a book has totally gotten under my skin is called uh, Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez. I think it's one of the best books, horror or not horror, of the 21st century. Ooh, I'm reading that. Give me a sense of your writing day. You're teaching during the day. Yep. So when do you write and do you give yourself a goal of writing X amount per day? Do you feel you need to write every day? So if it's during the school year and depending on like how busy that time of year is, you know, I try to cut myself a little slack, but I always try to do something writing or writing adjacent. If that means I'm supposed to be reading for research to me, that counts as like writing. But if I'm in the, if I'm in the teeth of a novel, I aim for 500 words a day. 
but again, realistically, then I set sub goals like, well, if I can hit that five to seven times a week, if I can get 10 to 12 or maybe even 15,000 words a month, you know, so that builds in just life happens. You're not always going to be able to do it. And as far as when I do it, if it's while I'm teaching, usually it's at night. But if I can squeeze in, like if I find a free period I didn't know I had had or when I was a lot younger, <laughs> if the kids were taking a quiz, I was working on a story. They could have been cheating. I hope they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Advice you would give a horror writer starting out? You know, obviously read horror, but also read out of genre. Like to me, those are equally important lessons. Like find out how a romance story works, you know, find out how other stories works just to see, you know, other writers doing their thing. And I think maybe the easiest way to like, if you're having a hard time coming up with a horror story, for me, the easiest way is taking something else from another genre and putting it into horror. Or how would I do the story as a horror story? Uh, And I think advice for all writers, be patient with yourself and be kind to yourself. Those are, I think, two very hard things to do. So like the patient part of it is you're going to get rejected. Don't despair. You know, just keep writing. Move on to the next thing. The last question we stole from Stephen Colbert, but we find it illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Happy, healthy, full of love. And then in parentheses, I'm a cheat plus horror. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Our conversation with Paul Tremblay, I have loved every single one of these conversations. I, know <laughs> I really have. I mean, one of the things that really stays with me is I've asked every author pretty much the same question because I am full of fear. So I'm frightened of flying. I'm frightened of bugs. I'm frightened of spiders. I'm frightened of screwing up my kids. So I'm sort of fascinated by the fact that I'm drawn to horror, which is something that's designed to scare you. And I have a general feeling that I don't enjoy fear. So I'm amazed that that all of the authors have said, yes, we're frightened of lots and lots of different things. Maybe we just want to embrace that. And we think maybe by embracing it, we'll work through it. I'm not sure, but I'm fascinated by that part of fans and writers. And all of the authors we've talked to have said there is hope in horror writing. I'm not there yet. I'm not sure I buy that, but I'm willing to keep an open mind and I'm willing to read some more of the genre. They've also said there is humor in horror writing. And I have seen some of that, some of that. Again, I'm willing to keep an open mind. I think there's a certain amount of glee that horror authors take in whether or not they can pull something off. The classic example, I think, from this series has been Josh Mallerman's Pearl, which is about a murderous pig with ESP. That's a ridiculous concept. And if you saw it in a Warner Brothers cartoon, you could sort of buy it. But the fact that Josh Mallerman is able to, I think, pull it off and make it scary while still keeping that sense of glee and humor sort of intact. It's a real talent amongst horror authors. And I'm not sure I'd say optimistic, but gleeful, occasionally gleeful, I will go with. So how do we wrap up this occasional series on horror writing? We started early on talking to Michael Arnzen, who is a professor who teaches horror writing. We we wanted somebody who was in the academic end of this. He teaches creative writing. He teaches horror writing and how it fits in the genre of English language fiction. And so we thought we'd go back to him. How many students does he have? What are they interested in? Do they themselves want to write horror? And what do they think is in the genre? So let's conclude all this. Michael Arnzen, professor at Seton Hill University in Pennsylvania. Michael Arneson, it is good to have you back with us, and it is good to have you sort of bookending this series that we have done on horror fiction. When you're teaching this genre, how important is it to go all the way back to Shelley, to Stoker, to Poe? Is that really where you do the grounding, uh, the start of your teaching? 
Well, if you're going to be a creative writer, you should read everything you can, especially the classics. If only because you never know what your audience has already read. So, you know, anybody that picks up one of my books, <laughs> my fiction novels, I'm going to assume they've read Stephen King. But also, they might be familiar with Poe and all those authors that you name. You know, there's a school of thought among professors in English departments that if you only taught genre fiction and literature, whether it's romance or horror or whatever, you'd only be teaching people part of the whole picture of creative writing. And so it's better to, to do it from a more general perspective and teach the canon, as he said, you know, and then people can pick up techniques from all facets of literature that they might bring to bear on their own writing. And so, I, I mean, balance is everything, really. Are there works that we find on your syllabus again and again? What are the works you find you draw from most consistently for your students to read? Oh, uh, yeah, I Master of the Red Death finds its way out to all my, all my <laughs> syllabi. That's from Edgar Allan Poe. That's classic. I also, I believe every every any horror fan anyway should read the Telltale Heart. I mean, come on. So that's uh, often on my syllabi, and sometimes my students who took multiple classes from me uh, are reading these same things over and over again. As far as novels, there's one we just started in my intro to English class right now, and it's Dracula. To me, that is the ultimate kind of text of horror because it's experimental as much as it's about, you know, the kind of supernatural legends of vampires and all that. It's a classic of, you know, Irish literature. Stoker's a really entertaining writer for his time, very theatrical, of course, because of his background. You teach undergraduate English, so I'm interested to know, do you find yourself teaching development of setting differently, uh, setting up of atmosphere? Do you find yourself teaching character development differently than you would, say, a classic English class? doesn't feel like it's any different, except perhaps in the way that horror fiction tends to skew towards psychological issues. And you have to have some understanding of basic psychology, I think, to really probe into the characterization and whatnot. And then sometimes even a book like Dracula can be a gateway into reading some of those more difficult literary texts, like, I don't know, Turn of the Screw by Henry James, or something really deeply psychological, like a stream of conscious uh, book, like uh, Ulysses or something. Because once you start talking about psychological issues in one popular text, a student finds comfort in being able to discuss those issues with almost any text. And that, to me, that's the ideal of teaching, is to really open up these comfort zones and practice in a safe environment where you can talk about issues, write about issues, research things of interest to you or that are of interest to our society today in a way that you feel confident you could do it again after college or in another class. Perhaps with Dracula as an introductory gateway again. What are some of the more modern books that would be on your syllabus? Oh, geez. I mean, last year, two years ago, I got to teach a class in global horror, and we just sampled like international authors. So I'm going to bloat if I try to pronounce their names and so forth. It was kind of a wide survey of kind of like classic folklore from the Ukraine all the way to contemporary Korean horror fiction. There was one book I highly recommend. I'll probably, I hope to get to teach it again. The author's name, Augustina Basterica. I hope I'm saying that right. She has a novel called Tender as the Flesh, which it's cringy when you read it. There are a number of uncomfortable scenes in it. But to me, it's almost a modern day 1984 in the way that it's critiquing society. So 
we the students loved it. I was afraid they were going to like complain to the dean or something. This is too brutal. Hudson has lost the, the plot. He's, <laughs> he's just assigning these crazy things. But yeah, they, they, uh, they really chewed it up and had some great discussions of it. Have any of your kids in the creative writing area come out and themselves tried to write and tried to publish? Oh, yeah, a lot. You know, I directly encourage them to try it. A lot of English majors, if they're undergraduates, they come to college thinking, I love to read and write, but I don't necessarily know if I can get a job. You know about this stuff. The journalism is a job, of course, but there are others, librarianships, teaching. I mean, those are the top three, actually, that most people assume their jobs are. And as you know, in our culture, it is, it's, there's less money being put into some of those areas, unless it's in the big media. Yeah. But there's still jobs there. And when I tell my students, this is something I ripped off completely from a book I once read. The sentence I lift from that, I'm always telling my students, is that where there is words, there is work. Because not everybody's an expert with words, and somebody's willing to pay you to share your expertise. A lot of my students do want to go on to be writers, and I encourage them to try it. But there are other elements of the industry that they can get into, like editing or being an agent. The last question I wanted to ask you was about, we talked last time about how it's sort of a new era in horror because social justice is becoming a part of it. It's not just about interesting ways to die. It's also Victor Laval's doing some really interesting things. Stephen Graham Jones doing some interesting things. Jordan Peele doing amazing things. Are you finding that students are finding a renewed interest in the genre because they can bring that topicality to the work? Um, yes. In fact, I mean, I'll have students ask me, like, why are there so many white male authors on the syllabus, <sighs> that kind of thing. They're, like, really well-schooled in this stuff, especially, I think, in the English major. You can't help it. You know, I used to always believe, in, and I'm a product of, like, the 90s uh, graduate schools. Back then, I would be like, you can't get an English degree and not be a feminist because all these professors are feminists, and most of them are women talking about feminist issues in literature. So it was, like, it was very feminist-heavy in that period of time. Nowadays, you know, cultural criticism has shaped the way that today's professors teach, and a lot of it is, is social justice oriented. At Seton Hill, you know, because it's a Catholic institution, social justice was always already built into the curriculum. You know, that's part of Catholic social teaching. So even though I'm not a practicing Catholic, I, you know, don't go to church every Sunday, I'm still interested in social justice, and so I, I try to make it a part of my classes. The students, too, want that. They really respond to it. If there's a story that teaches them something, and not just about another culture, about a background of somebody who might be in the classroom with them from another culture. Mm. You know? So when I taught international or global horror that uh, a couple of years ago, that, the students just ate that up with a spoon. <laughs> I was giving them geography assignments, and they liked it. I, I was like, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> You've introduced a term, though, that sticks in my mind feminist horror. I can't get my mind around that. What, what, what Professor Arnzen? <laughs> well, I mean, I can actually answer that, I think. I would argue that Stephen Graham Jones's Indian Lake trilogy is very much feminist horror. The protagonist is a very strong kick rear end woman, and she doesn't make apologies for it. And we are growing up with her in the Indian Lake trilogy. And it's not 
about, and I, I hate to, to sound too much like a pseudo intellectual about horror. I feel like I'm taking Michael's job away, but I, it's not about the male gaze. It's not about, you know, the girl got, you know, she went to bed with a couple of guys and so therefore she deserves to die. It's not about her taking her shirt off. It's about her standing up to the evil in her town. And I would argue that that's feminist horror. Sure. Yes, definitely. Oh, definitely. I mean, Stephen Graham Jones is responding, I think, overtly to the concept of the final girl, which is actually a, a phrase that comes not out of like popular cinema studies, but from feminist film studies from a writer named Carol Clover and her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. She talks about this final girl trope. And yes, that title is awesome, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. It's awesome. It is awesome. And I'm totally going to read it now. I'm totally going to read it. Well, with her analysis of feminist horror, Kate has raised her grade from a B plus to an A. (laughs) And I compliment her. Michael Arnzen, it's really interesting talking to you from the academic standpoint of horror. Seton Hill University, we really appreciate both their having you teaching these kids and using horror as such a wonderful way to approach literature of all kinds. So our best to you. Mm-hmm. Thank right. you for bookending our series on horror. We appreciate it. Yeah. You know, it really is the case. I think horror is optimistic that it does give us hope. I mean, why would we keep turning the pages if we didn't hope somebody was smart? So I think hope is actually underlying it all. You know, I hope that your podcast continues to be the great success it is. I listened to that Stephen Graham Jones interview. I think I'm going to put it on my syllabus. It it was so good. Oh, Oh, great. Great. So there it is, our conversation with Michael Arnzen and our conversation with Paul Tremblay. And I really hope you've enjoyed our horror series. I can't guarantee that we're not going to do another horror book or horror author in the future because I'm a huge fan. But I really enjoy doing this series, even if I had to drag my co-host kicking and screaming. I'm very thankful that I got to talk to some of my author heroes. And I hope you enjoyed taking the journey with us and that maybe perhaps you'll read out of your comfort zone. Anyway, <laughs> with that, <laughs> with that, I will remind you, we will remind you about the folks that make this podcast possible and close with a coda from Paul Tremblay. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. I'll end with one of my favorite quotes from Robert Block who wrote Psycho, of course. He said, quote, despite my ghoulish reputation, I really have the heart of a small boy. I keep it in a jar on my desk. (laughs) 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 All right. right.